let's begin with prayer first. Gracious God, as we gather around your word, we thank you for it. And we praise you that you have not left us in the dark. You have given us your will in writing. And we thank you for that and ask that as we attend to your written word, that we might better understand you and your will for us, that we might understand your ways in the world, and that you would use us as a result to proclaim the good news of Jesus far and wide. We ask this in his name and for his glory. Amen. Let me go to the introduction in my handout to remind you that we have been doing a series on the book of Psalms and we are still there. We are there for another few weeks. Uh, Come the second week of Advent, we will be uh, leaving the Psalms, our Psalm series, and going to some more traditional Advent passages. And we've been doing two things as we have been looking at the Psalms. We have been looking at the uh, bird's eye view, as it were, and we have been looking at the structure of the book and noticing again what I believe Jesus saw in the Psalms, namely that they were brought together as a collection and that the collection as a whole predicted the ministry of Jesus in a way that is remarkable, alluding even to his death and his resurrection, his subsequent lordship, his ascension, and also his suffering, something that um, New Testament scholars have been looking for evidence of for a long time. And lo and behold, here it has been in the Psalms all along. But we've also been pausing and setting aside our Christological agenda to look at certain milestones, certain markers in the Psalms. And if you remember rightly, we looked at the beginning of the book of Psalms, Psalms 1 and 2. We looked at the middle, Psalm 73. And if you remember, uh, my math is never very good, but it's not as bad as you might be guessing. We looked at the conclusion, which begins with Psalm 146. So if Psalm 146 to 150 is the conclusion, then Psalm 53 is the middle. And it talked about kind of a a moment when we could lose our way and we need to keep our focus on Jesus and not envy the prosperity of the wicked. What's the story behind the lessons today? Well, I thought that a series on the Psalms ought to deal with those Psalms that contain nasty imprecations. You may have noticed and even gasped a little bit as we said uh, together he will wash his feet in the blood of the wicked. And as we said at the end of Psalm 137, happy is the one who wholly renders your recompense in keeping with what you've done to us. Happy is he who takes your little ones, these are babies, and dashes their heads against the rocks. Our passage from Romans chapter 12 talked about repaying evil with good. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with others. So there's a problem, and that is how to reconcile the Psalms of vindication with uh, what we have been taught by Jesus in the Gospels. And the problem is very real. And I don't pretend today to bring a complete solution to the problem, but I do hope to perhaps bring a bit of perspective on it. So serious is the problem that in the 1962 Canadian Book of Common Prayer, Psalm 58 was omitted. So if you are uh, an 8.30 a.m. Book of Common Prayer uh, weekly attender and you think you've gone through the Psalms, 
Uh, you have never read Psalm 58 if you've been only following uh, the Book of Common Prayer. So that's why I wanted to focus on it today. And also, the last few verses of Psalm 137 are omitted from the Book of Common Prayer. So that's the reason behind my choice, was to include these psalms that have been omitted, kind of as a challenge to us, because if the Word of God is the Word of God, which it is, then it doesn't make sense for us to be leaving parts out. I think that sends the wrong message. I understand why the committee decided to omit Psalm 78 or Psalm 58, but um, I think in retrospect, it probably wasn't the right call. One of my pet peeves is preachers who, when they begin a sermon, will lament about uh, the text that they were given in the lectionary. You know, I lost the draw today, and today I'm preaching from whatever passage they, they might not like. I just think that that's, that sends out entirely the wrong message. I mean, the entire Word of God is the entire Word of God, and uh, it's all ultimately good news. So I want to invite you to come on a quest with me today to look at Psalm 58, and as we do so, we are going to consider those other psalms that contain um, vindication, that contain uh, what appear to be curses on other people. And let there be no mistake, um, people have tried to soften the lang language, but um, it cannot be so softened. Uh, oh God, break their teeth in their mouths, smash the fangs of young lions, O oh Yahweh. Um, Blessed is he who takes your little ones and dashes their head against the rocks. We're going to look at those passages more specifically in a minute. But I want to suggest that uh, we begin by looking at Psalm 58. And I'm breaking the rule of a preacher today by having more than one point. Uh, but um, such is the way it is. Sometimes when you want to cover ground, you, uh, you break a few rules. So you'll see that I have the idea of Psalm 58 um, on the front and top of your outline. And it's in what is called an exegetical outline. And it's something that we learned in seminary about summarizing a passage. And I think Psalm 58 can be summarized as follows. And it's at the top of your handout. How can humankind affirm God's justice and goodwill towards the righteous when pervasively evil people persistently rule over human affairs. How can people affirm God's justice and God's good will towards the righteous when pervasively evil people persistently rule over human affairs? I mean, you know, um, the, the, the ancient news is the same as the contemporary news. There are people in roles of leadership who are corrupt who will destroy other people who are trying to make things right? And the answer that comes, I believe, comes at the end of Psalm 58 and actually constitutes the reason why Psalm 58, I think, is good news and why Psalm 58 exists. It points to the fact that without the, the putting down of evil, without the quashing of evil, humankind will not be able to say, surely there is a God who judges on the earth, as we read in verse 12. Truly, there is a reward for the righteous. So how can humankind affirm God's justice and goodwill towards the righteous when evil people persistently rule human affairs? The answer is by trusting God enough to call upon him to remedy the situation by destroying evil and thereby allowing the righteous to see justice. We're also going to look at the, at the Psalms of Vindication, and so I want to just read the summary for that as well, and those will be two points of orientation for the rest that I want to say. 
These psalms of wrath or vindication, the one where a person seems to just kind of fly off the handle and say terrible things, terrible wishes about his or her enemies, they are prayers to God about especially notorious evildoers who are as much God's enemies as the psalmists. The intensity owes much to a theological problem that reflects the limited horizon of the psalmist. Namely, that if the wicked are not punished in this life, and the righteous rewarded in this life, then it appears that God was not just at all. We'll look at that a little bit further in a moment. So there's where we're going today. We're going to look at Psalm 58, Psalm 139, and we're going to talk about the imprecatory psalms. And I've listed the most nasty of them, uh, as it were, the ones that seem to um, um, lash out the most. They would be Psalms 35, 69 and 109 and there are seven of them uh, but psalm 58 could be included and psalm 137 gets that way towards the end so let's reflect on three problems the first is the problem that we find at the beginning of psalm 58. psalmist addresses a problem with sarcasm and he is speaking to um, a body that is intentionally ambiguous. Um, some people feel as though the psalmist is reaching out and sarcastically calling human rulers uh, to account. Other people think that the psalmist is um, sarcastically calling um, supernatural evil um, angels, as it were, to account. Um, and ironically, the word that is used for both rulers and supernatural powers is literally the word silence. So we've got three options. What's wrong with the world that we're in? I mean, how can countries exist where the, the, the rulers are corrupt, the government is corrupt, where people are supposed to be looking after the interests of their people, they're just robbing them blind and putting them in harm's way? The psalmist asks the question that is on the forefront of many of our minds, can you really make just decrees? Your silence is um, um, bad enough in itself. Doing nothing is, is a way of showing that you don't make just decrees. Do you judge people equitably? And the answer, of course, is no. And it's not that rulers are um, inept. It's not that they're bad administrators. It's not that they uh, necessarily um, just kind of, you know, I tried hard and I flubbed it up. Look what it says in verse 2. Surely with intent you devise wrongdoings. The violence of your hand is meted out on the earth. This is willful intention to do wrong. My friends, the problem is the pervasiveness of evil, and it's elaborated on in Psalm 58, verses 3 to 5, where the psalmist says, reminding uh, some of us, maybe, of the doctrine of uh, original sin, the wicked are estranged from the womb. Those who speak lies have strayed from birth. Their venom is like the venom of a snake, like a deaf cobra that stops up its ears so that it does not hear the voice of charmers or the expert casper of spells. This is a willful putting your hands over your ears and refusing to follow a direction that would lead in a better course, being bent on evil. Uh, 15 or 20 years ago, one of my wife's uh, cousins uh, was working for the fire department, and she was a um, psychologist, social worker. 
And uh, she uh, was involved in a study of um, children who were known to have been uh, involved in starting fires. And so she was asked to observe and to kind of make a, an assessment of this child. And um, the child was uh, led, into, uh, led into a room, and they watched through this, uh, this uh, screen. And uh, the child um, noticed that there were uh, matches on a shelf, and uh, there was also a can of gasoline. It was being quite closely supervised, but the child immediately went for the matches and then just trying to light the gasoline going, gasoline, fire. And she said that she was just overwhelmed with the fact that this kid seemed bent on evil. It was as though they were possessed or something. The child just had this obsession with doing destruction and in fact had done so. When I thought of that story, I thought of this verse where it says, the wicked are estranged from the womb. Those who speak lies have strayed from birth. There are some people who just kind of feel like, golly, uh, they're possessed in some kind of a special way. And you can often think that about the people who come to leadership over governments and such. They're very bright people, but gosh, some of them seem to be um, narcissistic psychopaths. Mind you, at the same time, in Psalm 51, David, who was a righteous man by and large, admits that he was sinful from birth. So this isn't necessarily people who are kind of um, extra um, wicked, but it also can refer to us. My friends, we see here the problem of the world, and it, uh, it brought to mind another memory that I had from my, my childhood, a, a relative of mine on this side, on, this time on my side of the family. Um, we were having dinner together, family dinner, and my brother-in-law was there, and my brother-in-law is from Colombia. Um, and this is at a time in Colombia when there were uh, drug lords and guerrillas and corrupt rulers over government. And um, my, my younger relative said to him, well, why do you allow that to happen in your country? And he said, well, it's not that easy. The police are corrupt. If you call the police for help, the police is a bad man. She was happening to study political science at the time. Uh, which made it extra ironic. But this uh, younger relative of mine said, why don't the good people make the bad people go away? Uh, at which point my brother-in-law's eyes kind of rolled and said, well, it's a little more complicated than that. I mean, you know, the whole government is corrupt. The whole police force is corrupt. And if somebody tries to make things right, like that political leader did in Ecuador not very long ago, I mean, he was riddled with machine guns before he could do the good that he wanted to do. He was ready to blow the whistle on some corrupt leaders. So we have this problem that evil is endemic, and it's affecting society. <coughs> Excuse me. Well, here we have the solution, and it comes in verse 6. Oh God, break their teeth in their mouth. Smash the fangs of young lions, O Yahweh. Let them flow away like the water that walks off with them. When he aims his arrows, let them be as without tips, like a slug that dissolves as it moves, or a woman's stillbirth that sees not the sun. Before your pots can discern the fire of thorns, whether they be fresh thorns or already ablaze, may God sweep them away. This kind of seems like overkill, we might think but it's not. Well, in some ways it is. 
I mean, if you look at verse, uh, if you look at verse six, it sounds like uh, uh, something terribly violent is being asked, um, breaking the teeth in their mouth. But you have to remember that this is referring to a predator, uh, an animal predator, like a lion, who presumably has its prey in the lion's mouth. So when the psalmist says, break their teeth in their mouth, smash the fangs of young lions, O Yahweh, it's actually a word that could include the jawbone. So it's, it's break the devilish hold which this beast has on these people. Um, make it stop, God, and disarm them. Make their arrows be as without tips. Um, or as a woman's stillbirth that sees not the sun. Lord, nip this problem in the bud and deal with it fully and manifestly right now, please. And as a result, the righteous will rejoice when he sees recompense. He will wash his feet in the blood of the wicked. And then humankind will say, truly there's a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges on the earth. <coughs> Excuse me. It was verse 10, I think, that um, led the uh, editors of the Book of Common Prayer at that particular edition anyway, he will wash his fleet feet in the blood of the wicked to be expunged from the Psalter. Well, it is a nasty picture. And this brings us to the second part where I want to address um, the problem of Psalm 58, 10, and 138, 8 to 9, and then move to the vindictive Psalms. <clears throat> My friends, whatever else this means for those of us who have the entire canon, we know from the New Testament <clears throat> that Jesus took a different position, that he washed the feet of the wicked in his own blood, quite literally, that Jesus washed the feet of the wicked. He sought to purify them by means of his own blood. And as regard to Psalm 137, 8 and 9, blessed is the one who takes your little ones and dashes their heads against the rocks. Well, one cannot um, solve the dilemma. It's very strong language, but it helps to keep in mind that that is exactly what the Babylonians did to the Israelite children. And the thing that ought to give pause for reflection is to know that this still happens today. When one group lashes out against another, uh, dastardly things can even be done to little children. They can be burned alive, uh, they can be bombed, and so on. So in, in this case, um, when you're thinking about the future Babylonians, and you're wondering about how this is going to stop, and you realize that the adults did this, you, realize, you, you believe that the children are like the adults, they're as inherently evil as the adults, and so it's really a way of saying, Lord, nip this in the bud before it happens again. And it's also tit for tat, because that's what um, the Babylonians uh, did to um, the Israelites. Well, that doesn't take us very far, does it? Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. But in the time that remains, I want us to consider the problem of the vindictive Psalms and to suggest some ways in which uh, we might get help in uh, 
understanding how these could be, and this is, uh, the Word of God. And it's really summarized in what I've said at the top of the page, but I want to elaborate it, uh, upon it just a little bit more. First of all, it's helpful to remember that the psalmist is not taking things into his own hands. He is not taking those little babies and dashing their heads against the rock. He's not even thinking about it. Instead, he's bringing the issue to God and expressing his perspective, giving it over to God, who is the God of justice. So this is vindictive. It is, um, it is, it is potent. Uh, it, is, it, is, uh, it is filled with, with anger, and it is filled with a, a sense of rage. But the psalmist is not taking matters into his or her own hands, but is giving it over to God. It is a prayer. It is an offering to God. And so uh, that detracts from what we might otherwise consider to be an act of violence. It is given to the judge and put in the hands of the judge. If you're wondering where I'm going with this, it might be helpful for you to look at page um, 8, where I offer 10 observations on the imprecatory psalms. And I've begun to say at the bottom of page 8 that these prayers are offered to God, not acted on by humans. They're expressions of trust in God, even more loyalty to God. You wouldn't be giving this to God if you didn't believe in God and think that God had the capacity to take things in his own hands and do right in the end. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord, is something that comes from the Old Testament. The second factor is, unlike Hebrew language and culture, our language and others such as French and culture is more uh, sanitized. Uh, we order chicken cordon bleu. Doesn't that sound lovely? But think about what happened to the animal for that beautiful piece of chicken cordon bleu to arrive on your plate. Um, Germans are uh, not in the same category. The German language is, is a little bit closer to um, calling a spade a spade. Uh, a hospital is a Krankenhaus. It's, it's, a, it's a place for the sick. Um, uh, a bra is a Busenhalter. I mean, they're just calling it the way it is. And so um, <clears throat> the Israelite culture and the Hebrew language does very much the same. Someone has pointed out that when Jesus said, <clears throat> thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, well, think about what's going to happen for that to take place, for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Um, that paints a pretty sore picture. Thirdly, our life in Canada is exceptional for its peacefulness. Friends, if we have a problem with this language, in a way, you are the envy of people in the Sudan and in Rwanda and in Ukraine. Um, and in the Gaza, and in the south of Israel. Uh, for many people, this is all too commonplace. And for us to sit here and go, oh, what a terribly wicked thing to say about somebody else, indicates a fact that we are blessed in a way that very few people in, in, in history have. So, um, count your lucky stars. I taught the Psalms once in the, in the 90s, uh, when we had people from Rwanda here whose families had been uh, literally um, butchered by um, people of other tribes, and they said, I don't have a problem with this. I don't understand what your problem is. We thought, ooh, man, there is a cultural wake-up call. They also remind us of our own capacity for hatred. I've said this before, and I'll say it simply in passing. 
that one of the few redeeming features, and I put redeeming in sort of triple quotes, of the trench warfare that we have once again seen in Europe <clears throat> is a reminder that our moral state of being is not improving. We're improving technologically to our advantage, but morally we are the same evil people at heart. We are capable of doing monstrous things to each other. And so if this strikes you as being alien, thank God, be glad that you've been redeemed, but dig a little deeper in your heart and you'll find that somewhere in your past, if not residually in your present, is something awful like this. Someone once said, the problem is not that you're looking at the imprecations as an object, but you're looking at them as though they were a rear. The cursing psalms are an expression of faith. I've said this before, Brueggemann said it well, the rawest speech of rage can be submitted to Yahweh because there's reason for confidence that Yahweh takes it seriously and will act. Or as Bonhoeffer said, whoever entrusts rage to God dismisses any thought of ever taking revenge himself. My friends, the imprecations are also an invitation to empathize with the sorely oppressed. The Psalms were meant to be sung, they were meant to be prayed, they were prophecies, but they were also meant to be overheard. So when you hear someone expressing this kind of anguish, it ought to bring to mind an empathy for and a desire to pray for those who are in a similar situation today. It's kind of a wake-up call and it brings us out of our comfortable selves to be reminded that there are people who are in this situation and we're called to pray for them, as indeed our Lord did. There's a Christian tradition of Jesus having prayed these prayers on behalf of the poor and the needy himself. The ninth factor on page nine, and with this we're coming close to the end, brings us right back to the beginning of Psalm 58. The language of the enemies in the Psalms typically transcends mere human enemies. It extends to the principalities and powers that are beyond mere flesh, as we read about in Ephesians 6.12, where Paul tells us that the battle is not simply with flesh and blood, but with principalities and powers and spiritual forces that are alive in the world today. And they remain alive until they are finally uh, bound and cast into the lake of fire at the end. So the impressive imprecatory psalms serve to unmask these powers and their destructive ways. And then the final point that I want to make, and it's one that's rarely given, but it's one that I think is the most important, is to bring us back to a theological problem. It's not so much that the psalmist is hating his neighbor, what the psalmist is worried about is what this means about God. Because if you lived in Old Testament times, you would not have had a kind of a, a fully developed sense of the afterlife. And if justice wasn't done in this life, it wasn't done. So the psalmist is putting his theology on the line and in looking at people who are wicked, who are going to their graves without ever having been judged for what they've done. And that created a theological problem which just raised the ante and which made these cries all the more desperate and which made these people as agitated they were. They said, if so-and-so gets away with it, there cannot be a God of justice. We know better today in that we say, well, so-and-so will get their just desserts after they go and, and face God. There wasn't a sense of the uh, afterworld in the Old Testament, but it was, it, was, uh, it was largely overlooked and it was not fully developed. So when the psalmist is saying in Psalm 58, and I think this is the point of Psalm 58, 
is that only when God restores things now, then will humankind say in verse 11, truly there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges on the earth. Let me conclude by bringing it down to earth in a way that you might find helpful in a way that you might not. I was reading this week uh, something in an email that was uh, an advert for pastors that talked about how to answer tough questions for children. And one of the questions that a child had was, can I be sure that God will always keep me safe? Well, we would want to say yes. But then you think about, well, um, there are Christian Palestinians near the hospital in Gaza City. Uh, it may be the infants of uh, Christian Palestinians um, who are um, off incubators because of what's going on in the hospital. And here we bring come, come to the question, I guess, of the afterlife and, and a reason why we can be grateful for it and why we can affirm the justice of God is because we do know that to be absent from the body is to be present from the Lord. So the answer, of course, ultimately is if you're in the hands of Jesus, you are safe. But that doesn't necessarily mean that we're always going to see justice and that there's always going to be safety for everyone on uh, this side of the Jordan. Dear friends, God is just. God is in control. God, we know from the book of Revelation, will make things right. And it's not a pretty picture. But sin isn't a pretty picture either. And we need a God with an absolute standard of justice who has zero tolerance for wickedness. And zero tolerance involves complete obliteration of evil. And that is not a pretty picture. And it's not one for us to take into our own hands, but to offer over to God in an honest expression of desire that he would intervene and bring justice for all. Amen.